0: What if the book of Acts didn't exist? When we finished the Gospels, the next book of the Bible would be Paul's letters to the church at Rome. All kinds of questions would swirl through our heads. We would think, how did the events on the outskirts of the empire, Judea, get all the way back to the capital city of Rome? Rome. We would wonder what caused this church to grow in just a few short years from a smattering of timid, fearful Jews huddled away in Jerusalem to a full-fledged Gentile church living openly in the heart of the empire. How did this happen? Even more basic, we would wonder, what's a church? Who's Paul? Why a letter? You see, the book of Acts answers all of those questions plus much, much more. Acts traces the expansion of Christianity all around the Mediterranean world. It begins in the Jewish capital of Jerusalem, and it ends in the Gentile capital of Rome. It explains how the Jewish Messiah became Lord of the Gentiles. You see, before he ascended into heaven, Jesus gathered his disciples, and he told them to go and make disciples of all nations. Acts tells us how they did it. And it is absolutely crucial that we study the book of Acts, for there has never been a more successful period of church history than that of the first church. Understand, in a single generation, the disciples took the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. Just 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, Paul told the Colossians that the gospel had gone out into all the world. You remember in Thessalonica, Acts 17, that Christian missionaries were accused of having turned the world upside down, and their success was without the 21st century help of technology and modern transportation. Their only media was pen and parchment. The church had little money and no marketing. In fact, there was no such thing as a church building the modern church desperately needs to recapture the power of the early church. The 1996 blockbuster movie titled Twister was was about a group of tornado chasers. One of the reasons for the film's success was its vivid special effects. Well, shortly after its release, the movie was being shown at a drive-in theater near Kansas City. And one night during the showing of the movie, A real-life twister swept through the theater, ripping apart the screen and destroying the concession area. Talk about some realistic special effects. (laughs) That might have been a little too vivid for my tastes. But I bring this up as a way of directing our prayers over the next few months. For as we study about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, about the radical growth of the early church, why don't we pray that God will bring to life in our church what's on the screen? We have the same God. We have the same Holy Spirit. Why don't we ask for an Acts repeat? Verse 1 tells us, The former account I made, O Theophilus. Now Luke writes, both his gospel and the book of Acts, to a friend named Theophilus. You remember when he was born, you remember what the doctor said. That's the awfulest looking baby I've ever seen, and the name stuck. The word means friend of God. He was possibly a Roman official, won to Christ by the apostle Paul. Now Luke was a doctor who traveled with Paul as his personal physician. In fact, later in the book, He will write of Paul's journeys in the first person. He was with Paul a lot of the way. Luke was also a historian. He used the two years that Paul was in prison in Caesarea in order to canvas the region and research his writings. During that time, he could have visited the Mediterranean coast up toward Antioch. He could have gone down through Galilee and Samaria and Jerusalem researching the gospel in the book of Acts, interviewing the different characters that, that he would write about. You know, often in Roman times, a rich benefactor would bankroll a work of art or a history. Theophilus may have been the one who supported Luke's work. If so, what a contribution Hey, when we get to heaven, Theophilus will get introduced as the guy who gave us a quarter of the New Testament. Well, Luke speaks of his gospel. It was the former account of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. And it would have ended with the crucifixion. But three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. He wasn't done doing and teaching, Jesus had only just begun. There was much more to come. You know, some stories deserve a sequel. And Luke's trusty pen was ready. Reminds me of the guy who went to see the movie Malcolm X. He said the movie was so good he wished he'd seen one through nine. In John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus promised his disciples, The works that I do, you will do also and greater works than these you will do. This is the book of Acts. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the disciples continued the works and teachings of Jesus. Luke's sequel is called the Acts of the Apostles, but it should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit doing the work. Jesus was continuing what he began to do and teach through the power of the Holy Spirit working in the disciples, and he's still at it. I hope you know. He's still at work doing and teaching. In a sense, this book doesn't stop with Acts chapter 28. It's still being written. With each generation, new generation of Christians, Jesus writes a new chapter. Well, again, the book of Acts begins, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, the Gospels record only a few of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. But Luke assures us that Jesus provided many infallible proofs. He knew that the future generations of Christians would hinge their faith on the testimony of these first eyewitnesses. Thus he made certain that the evidence for his resurrection was undeniable, irrefutable, so clear, so conclusive that none of his disciples would ever doubt its reality. And of course, none of them ever did. Verse 4 tells us, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Moses was given the monumental task of babysitting a nation. There has never been a more mammoth babysitting job in history than the one Moses got. For 40 years he cared for 2 million juvenile juvenile delinquents. And he needed help. Rather than deposit the holy spirit solely on Moses, God poured out the spirit on 70 elders. But you see, this decentralization of spiritual power and authority concerned Moses' apprentice, Joshua. He thought, well, what if the common folks start to think that they too can have God's power? And I love Moses' reply to Joshua in Numbers 11. He said, oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses' wish became the Father's promise. Throughout the Old Testament, from Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel to Joel, God predicted the day when he would pour out his Spirit on all flesh, on all people. Now the time is near. Jesus tells his disciples to return to Jerusalem and wait. Not many days from now, they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Notice that phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now here's where some terminology can trip us up. On this subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, some of our Baptist brothers are quick to point out 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. And they make the case that when a person becomes a Christian, this means that they are initiated by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Thus they claim that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with conversion, with being born again, but not so fast. You see, some words have multiple meanings. Like our English word bear. It's a grizzly animal. It's carrying a load. It's birthing a child. It's an act of endurance. Bear means a lot of things. Likewise, the Greek word baptizo, it it too has multiple meanings. On the one hand, it does mean to initiate. When, When a rookie quarterback enters his first game and gets sacked, what do we say? Well, he had his baptism into the NFL. But the word can also mean to dip or to engulf or to immerse. When a person is baptized with water, they're submerged or they're dipped under the water. So when Paul in his letters uses the word baptism, he's referring to initiation, to being born again, to being converted. According to Paul, to be baptized by the Spirit is to be made part of the body of Christ. But when Luke or Jesus or Peter used the term they have a different meaning in mind. they're speaking of the engulfing or the immersing into the power of the Holy Spirit in John in, in Luke chapter I'm mean, sorry in Acts chapter one, Luke is going to refer to this experience with the Holy Spirit in five different ways. he's going to call it baptism, he's going to call it reception or receiving the Spirit he's going to say the spirit will come upon you he's going to say. You'll be filled with the Spirit. He's going to say the Spirit was poured out upon the church. My point is, don't get caught up with the semantics and miss out on the dynamic. Call it what you want. But we all need to be drenched in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's available to us. Verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying... Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now notice the disciples, they're still focused on Israeli politics. You see, it's not until the Holy Spirit is unleashed that they understand that before Jesus establishes an earthly kingdom, he's going to build a spiritual one. The Holy Spirit is going to invade human hearts. And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. You see, the reason they were preoccupied with the future was because they lacked his power for the present. (laughs) And that's about to change. Verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Notice verse 8 provides us a power, a purpose, and a plan. The power is the Holy Spirit. The purpose is to be witnesses. And the plan is to spread out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. You know, verse 8 actually becomes an outline for the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7 are going to describe the church's outreach to Jerusalem. In chapters 8 and 9, the gospel is going to go to Judea and Samaria. And then in chapters 10 through 28, it's going to take it to the end of the earth. And to fulfill such a grand commission, the disciples will need supernatural help. Notice in verse 8, Jesus says that the Spirit will come upon you. You see, this is the third of three experiences that the New Testament describes that believers can have with the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, Jesus said that the Spirit was with his disciples and he will be in them the disciples before we're saved the Holy Spirit is with us how do you think we we come to know Christ who convicts us of sin who draws us to the Savior it's the Holy Spirit he's with us before we're converted but then once we believe in Jesus and and we come to know Christ the Spirit comes to dwell in us but you see there's a third experience we can have where the Holy Spirit comes upon us where he engulfs us or immerses us in his love and in his power. And this is what Jesus promises us here. You see, while the Spirit is with us, we can blaspheme the Holy Spirit by rejecting Jesus. Once the Spirit is in us, we can grieve him by failing to cooperate with his leadings. And since the Holy Spirit desires to come upon us and empower us, we can quench or, bottleneck or shut off the Spirit by failing to open up and receiving what He wants to do in our lives. Let's not grieve or quench the Spirit, but let's walk and flow in the power of the Holy Spirit. One year, the Tournament of Roses Parade in Pasadena, California was delayed when a beautifully decorated float sputtered in the middle of the street and came to a screeching halt, blocked up the parade route. The float had run out of gas. Well, the whole extravaganza was put on hold until someone came and fetched a can of gasoline. But what's hilarious about the out of gas float is that it was sponsored by the Standard Oil Company. (laughs) Here's a company with vast petroleum reserves, but they ran out of gas. And this is often the situation with Christians. God's power, the power of the Holy Spirit is at our fingertips, just a prayer away. But we run out of spiritual gas. Hey, let's not quench. Let's seek the power of the Holy Spirit. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? For Jesus, his ascension was a reunion. He was headed home. But for these disciples, it was a bewildering moment. I mean, they stood there with dropped jaw amazed at the sight, but all sorts of questions and uncertainties were racing through their minds. And the angels answered one of their unspoken questions. They say, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, you'll see him again. He's coming back. Jesus will return a second time. But what's implied there is that there's work to do. Evidently, the job of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth has a time constraint. It needs to be done before Jesus comes back, and there's no time to waste. This is why the disciples need spiritual power. John Stott once said, before Christ sent the church into the world, he sent the Spirit into the church. The same must be observed today, and I agree. Hey, let's never be guilty of trying to do the work of God without the Spirit of God. There's no substitute for spiritual power, not leadership intuition, not well-oiled organization, not professional know-how, not bankrolled initiatives, not slick presentations. No, no. Nothing is a substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. As one author said, when we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely on education, we get what education can do. When we rely on eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. But when we rely on the Holy Spirit, we get what God can do. And that's what we need. Notice verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. About a half a mile, they came back into town. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. This was probably the same upper room where Jesus and his men had shared the Last Supper. Tradition says that it was the house of John Mark. Well, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Note how Mary, the mother of Jesus, gets listed. Notice she's not the object of anyone's prayers. She's a participant in prayer. Mary is among the disciples, not over them. And notice too, Jesus' brothers now are among the believers. You remember the last time we saw them back in John chapter 7, we're told even his brothers did not believe in him. But apparently, the resurrection opened their minds and it changed their hearts. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. Peter was definitely the leader. And Peter said, men and brethren, This scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Talking about Judas Iscariot now. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and his entrails gushed out. That's not how I want to die, by the way. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Ekeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. And here Peter quotes two Davidic Psalms, Psalm 69, verse 25, and 109, verse verse 8. Now a couple of points here. Matthew 27 verse 7 says that the chief priests paid for the potter's field. But they paid for it with Judas's money, and that's why here Luke says that Judas bought the field. Also, Matthew 27 verse 5 tells us that Judas hanged himself. Yet here Luke tells us that Judas fell headlong and perforated his abdomen in such a way that his gut spilled out. If you put the two accounts together, here's what may have happened. Judas hung himself, but the tree limb snapped, and he fell on the rocks below, and all the gory stuff happened, and he died. Now Peter sees in Psalm 109 verse 8, that Judas needs to be replaced. Verse 21. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Notice here Peter's qualifications for the replacement disciple. First, longevity. I mean, he needed to have followed from the very start, and then second, he needed to have been an eyewitness of the risen Christ. And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, That he might go to his own place. And they cast lots. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now there's no doubt that Peter was correct in his understanding that a replacement for Judas was mandated by Scripture. But I believe that his impulsive nature caused him to jump the gun and select the wrong person. D.L. Moody once said. Trying to understand the Bible without the Holy Spirit is like trying to read a sundial by moonlight. I agree. I think Peter's, his interpretation was right, but I think his application was wrong. He wasn't spirit-led in his application. They cast lots. What was that? Casting lots was the equivalent of rolling dice or drawing straws. It was reliance on chance. And it's interesting, after the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, you never again see this happening in the New Testament. From now on, you'll never find believers casting lots or laying out a fleece or these kinds of things. In fact, you find believers leaning totally on the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit. It's my opinion that Matthias was not God's choice for the 12th Apostle. I believe that the Holy Spirit had already chosen a man named Saul of Tarsus. We call him Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Now chapter 2 begins. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were all together, all in harmony. What God can do among us when we gather together in one accord. Pentecost is a Greek word. It means 50th, and it was celebrated on the 50th day or the seventh Sunday after Easter. Pentecost was originally the Jewish Feast of Weeks or Harvest. It's celebrated toward the end of May. At the conclusion of the spring growing season, two of the very first sheaves of wheat harvested were offered to the Lord as part of this celebration, and this was fitting symbolism. For on this Pentecost, God is going to begin a harvest of souls, the church age. And he's going to do so by dedicating two sheaves or two bunches, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews also observed Pentecost as the anniversary of the giving of the law of Moses. In their mind, the two sheaves also stood for the two tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. Again, what fitting symbolism. That the day God gave the law to Israel, God poured out his grace on the church. And here's more symbolism. Exodus 32 verse 28 tells us that on the day Moses received the law, 3,000 sons of Levi fell in judgment. Isn't that what law leads to? It leads to condemnation and judgment. In contrast, before this day is through, The day God pours out his spirit and his grace upon all all the people there in Jerusalem, 3,000 souls are going to get saved because that's what grace does. It leads to salvation and forgiveness. Verse 2 tells us, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. (laughs) That's kind of a weak windstorm. It was as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. In the Bible, the Spirit is often depicted as the wind. You can't predict or chart the wind. And likewise, you can't predict or chart the movements of the Holy Spirit. All you can do with the wind is just lift your sails and let it take you. And that's how you work with the Holy Spirit. You lift your sails. You let him lead you. You let him guide you. An albatross is a strange bird. It has a wingspan of 12 feet. But its body weight makes it too heavy to take off on its own. When the wind stops blowing, an albatross is grounded. It stays airborne by gliding. But wow, can an albatross glide. I read where scientists strapped a radio transmitter to one albatross. After 30 days and 9,000 miles, the battery gave out. But the bird was still out over the ocean somewhere. It's been estimated that the albatross can stay at sea for years at a time. But its secret is its ability to ride the wind. When will we learn that we're like the albatross? We're grounded without the wind. Our only wings are faith. The only way for us to soar is to stretch out and catch a gust of the Holy Spirit. If we learn to trust in the Holy Spirit, we can stay at it for years at a time. But along with the wind came fire. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. None of these bright flickers of fire over the heads of the disciples. And one set upon each of them. Now, understand this. When Moses dedicated the Old Testament tabernacle, you remember what happened? God sent fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. When Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, what did God do? He sent fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. Now, here on Pentecost, a new spiritual temple, the church, is being dedicated. In which are also living sacrifices, the disciples. And what happens? Again, fire falls from heaven upon the living sacrifices, upon the disciples. In the tabernacle and in the temple, this fire was never repeated. Likewise, in the book of Acts, these flickers of fire appear just once during the opening ceremonies. Today, the church opened its doors. After that, you never see it again. It was God's way of dedicating this new temple, the church. Verse 4 And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. With the wind and the fire came a filling. God's Spirit filled those who were waiting on divine energy. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now this was not a learn a language in 30 seconds program, okay? The gift of tongues is not a native or learned language. It may not even be a known or earthly language. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul mentions the tongues of men and angels. Did you know that the gift of tongues could be an angelic language? What is the gift of tongues? When my heart becomes so full of praise to God that I can't find the right words to express my love to him, then God's Spirit will come to my rescue. He'll place words in my mind that I don't understand. But I utter them by faith, trusting that the Holy Spirit is interpreting the exact feelings of my heart, that what I'm saying through my lips are the exact representation of what the emotions that are in my heart. You see, God knows all languages, and he refuses to let anyone who wants to praise him end up tongue-tied. Aren't you glad? He gives us a release, the gift of tongues, and it's still available to those who ask. Verse 5, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. You see, Jews from all over the world were in town for this feast. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came near together, and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Evidently, on Pentecost, the Spirit-inspired tongues were a variety of Mediterranean languages, and the visitors recognized the church's praise in their own local language. Now, notice the reversal here. In Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages. Why? Because he wanted to scatter the people. Here he reunites the people by blessing them with the supernatural ability to speak and understand each other. Well, then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? You see, in the first century, most people were bilingual. They spoke the global Greek, but they also spoke their own local native language. Now in the streets of Jerusalem, visitors from all over the world are hearing these Galilean Jews speaking in languages they'd probably never even heard before, let alone knew it was a miracle. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And notice the content of what was spoken. The wonderful works of God. You see, the gift of tongues is always speaking praise to God. Now, if you travel in some charismatic circles, you have heard the phrase, a message in tongues. Understand, this is not a biblical phrase. The gift of tongues is never a proclamation from God. It's a praise or prayer to God. Paul states this very clearly in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 2. There he says, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Tongues isn't God speaking to us. Tongues is us speaking to God. Prophecy now is God speaking to man. Tongues is man speaking to God. Don't get the two confused. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, oh, they're just full of new wine. Some of them wrote the disciples off as drunk. They'd had too many wine coolers. They thought the church had taken a nip rather than a dip in the Holy Spirit, which is what had happened. And yet apparently there are some similarities. Both wine and the Holy Spirit, both distilled spirits and the Holy Spirit Deliver unbridled joy, uninhibited expression, unreserved boldness. I like how Tozer puts it. He says, the spirit has an exhilarating effect on the soul, much as wine has on the body. The spirit-filled man may literally dwell in a state of spiritual fervor, amounting to a mild and pure inebriation. I like that. A mild and pure inebriation. If you want to drive under the influence, make sure it's the influence of the Holy Spirit. Years later, in 1 Peter 1, verse 8, old Pentecost Pete, he still spoke of rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The Holy Spirit provides us a supernatural buzz. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Now he's providing an explanation for what's happened. They wondered, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, or 9 a.m. Now Peter's comment here kind of implies that if it had been 9 p.m., you might have had to worry about this crowd. (laughs) They could well have been a little tipsy, but not before breakfast, man, give us a break. Yeah, I've heard that Orthodox Jews don't eat or drink anything before 9 a.m. Now here's Peter's point. We're not drunk. This was what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And Peter's gonna go on now to quote Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. And this is very important here. The crowd has just witnessed this spiritual phenomena. But now Peter explains it by pointing to chapter and verse. He opens up his Bible to explain this experience. He says, this is what was spoken. And he goes back to Joel. In other words, guys, we're by the book here. This is scriptural. This is biblical. Now, again, some charismatics will excuse emotionalism and sensationalism by saying, more can be cooked up in the kitchen than what appears on the menu. In other words, God can do things. We don't necessarily need a, a passage of Scripture to validate what we're doing here. But you got to understand, this is lethal thinking. For once you begin to allow experience rather than Scripture to be the norm for the church, you open yourself up to all kinds of deceptive and dangerous practices. It's always safe to be able to point to chapter and verse. This is what was spoken by Scripture. Extra-biblical experiences can steer you off track. It's always wise to stick with the script. In verse 17, Peter quotes Joel, chapter 2, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. Now, Now notice, Joel predicted that the Spirit would be poured out when? In the last days. And notice, if Peter considered his day the last days, how much more applicable is the blessing to us? Never let anyone tell you that the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not for us today. No, the Spirit is to be unleashed in the last days. I think we qualify. In the last days God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. As Moses wished, the day has now come that the Holy Spirit and his power are no longer the exclusive privilege of a chosen few. Today, everyone, young and old, male and female, bulldog and yellow jacket, can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now these were all Joel's images of God's final judgment. Remember, Peter was addressing a Jewish audience. And sadly, this is what it's going to take to wake up the Jews. It's not until the global cataclysms of the great tribulation that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will come upon Israel. It's going to take these kinds of terrible judgments in order to wake up God's people, Israel. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here it's quoted of the Jews in Romans 10, verse 13. Paul quotes the same verse of the Gentiles. Peter begins his challenge to the crowd there in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now Notice how Peter believed, and now he blends both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In one verse, he teaches predestination and free will. He says that the cause of the crucifixion was both the will of God, but also the evil of men. And he doesn't try to reconcile the two. He just states them both and leaves them there. Verse 24, he continues to speak of Jesus, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, and here Peter quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. In other words, Jesus' body was never to deteriorate. This was a biblical prediction of his resurrection. Peter wraps up the psalm. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. He's speaking of Jesus, and Jesus will return to God's presence. Or he had already. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Get the idea Peter had gone back to Scripture. He had been reading his Bible. He'd been sorting things out during those 40 days that he'd been with Jesus. He'd been seeing how that the Old Testament had prophesied of the resurrection of Jesus. All these things that had happened had occurred according to Scripture. This was how Jesus had taught them after his resurrection. He showed them how the Scripture had predicted these things. Here King David, the ancestor of the Messianic line, predicts a risen Messiah. Peter argues that all that now has happened In Jesus' life has been a fulfillment of Scripture. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Peter is saying that the Jesus that was crucified is now sitting on the throne in heaven. And he's pouring out the power of the Holy Spirit upon his church. And he's still doing that even today. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And here he quotes Psalm 110 verse 1. Notice too, David did not ascend. He was obviously speaking of Jesus, not not himself. In fact, no one in the Old Testament ascended to heaven until Jesus had paid the pardon of sin. We've talked about this. Their soul went to Hades to wait for Jesus in order to lead them into God's presence. And it's interesting, the coming of the Holy Spirit was proof that Jesus had arrived in heaven. You see, Jesus promised his disciples that when he departed, he would send another comforter. Pentecost was proof that his word was good. It was evidence that his sacrifice had been accepted and that he had taken his seat as Lord of all. It's interesting, Ronald... Amundsen was a Norwegian explorer. He was the first man to actually discover the South Pole. And on one of his expeditions, he took a homing pigeon with him and he set it loose when he reached his destination. Imagine the joy when that bird arrived back on his wife's windowsill there in Norway. The bird's arrival signaled that her husband was still alive, that his mission had been accomplished. And this is the message that Jesus sent at Pentecost when he sent the dove of the Holy Spirit upon his church. Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Whoa, Peter, get back, man. Peter gets bold, doesn't he? Wow. Wow whom you crucified. Wow, just a few days earlier, Peter and his cohorts were barricaded behind closed doors, unwilling to step outside for fear of the Jewish authorities. Now he's going toe-to-toe with the very same people who engineered Jesus' execution. And he takes a jab. This Jesus, whom you crucified. Where's the timidity now? I mean, you look at this isn't even the same Peter that we saw in the Gospels. And that's true because the power of the Holy Spirit turns you into a new person. It gives you boldness that you wouldn't have ordinarily. Peter was a new man because he was now filled with the Holy Spirit. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Notice the Holy Spirit brought deep conviction of sin. These Jews were gripped by their guilt. Verse 38, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, notice the sequence. Peter tells them to repent and then be baptized. This is why we reject infant baptism as unbiblical. Because a baby isn't old enough to repent. And the sequence is repent, then be baptized. There are also some denominations that use verse 38 as a proof text for baptismal regeneration. In other words, that you're not truly saved until you're baptized. Don't believe that. If you examine all of Scripture, you realize that that can't possibly be true. For one, the thief on the cross, he was never baptized. And yet Jesus said to him today, you'll be with me in paradise. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he talks about how he didn't come to baptize but to preach the gospel. Apparently in Paul's mind, the two were not the same. The New Testament is clear. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone not by baptism. Warren Wearsby actually blames the King James translation for confusing verse 38. He suggests that it should actually read, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus on account of the remission of sins. Now, I personally have no problem with verse 38 as is, and I'll tell you why. Because the New Testament never portray the New Testament never portrays baptism as essential for salvation. But here's the deal if you're saved, why not be baptized? Why wouldn't you want to be baptized? And I think this verse shows the priority that the early church placed on baptism. Yes, it wasn't essential, but was it important? Sure, it was. In the early church, it was just a natural progression. You repented, you believed. You were baptized, and you were filled with the Holy Spirit. It was a package deal. You didn't pick and choose. When you came into Christ, you know, you repented, you believed, you were baptized, you were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter's phrasing here reflects the fact that he sees repentance and baptism as a unit. One naturally followed the other. So why even bother to separate them? I'm sure that's how he reasoned it. In fact, in the early church, when you came to Jesus, you went home wet. I mean, you just got saved and got baptized. None of this making a commitment and then waiting 20 years to follow it up with baptism. It's been said an unbaptized believer is foreign to the book of Acts.